ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we buy shit we don't need. Ideas are grateful. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. Noel, welcome to the Biohacking Secret Show. Anthony DiClemente, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. I am too. We're going to learn how to escalate, de-escalate, depending on the situation. Maybe not Maybe not escalate, but... Well, actually, there are times in peacemaking when you have to escalate. All right. I'd, I'd like to hear about... So we can talk yeah, about that. We'll talk about that too. <laughs> a lot around emotional... Well, I don't want to say emotional intelligence. Maybe emotional competence is a better word, and we'll get to all of that. But uh, for, for right. our listeners who might not be familiar with your work, maybe you could give us a little bit of insight on your background and origin story. Well, okay. I was born nearly blind, partially deaf, two club feet, left-handed, bad teeth, a lot of disabilities. You're serious. And I was, and uh, seriously, I, I couldn't walk until I was three years old. Uh, they couldn't figure out why I was doing poorly in school until the fourth grade when a nurse had the common sense to test my eyes for vision. And then I ended up with uh, Coke, Coke, Coke bottle lenses. My life was a total buzzkill for the girls as a kid. <laughs> Mine too, actually. So, but I had a good intellect, so I ended up going to Dartmouth College and came back. To, I'm from California. I'm a California native. I came back to California, went to law school, and uh, for 22 years, I was a hardcore trial lawyer, commercial and business trial lawyer. And Don't hold that against me. I took, I, took, <laughs> I took up the martial arts in the, in the 1980s, and I... I was awarded my secondary black belt by my teacher. And then, and then he promptly fired me. He said, you're an asshole. You're, you're arrogant. You're going to hurt people. Go learn Tai Chi. <laughs> so I started studying Tai Chi. And Tai Chi has two very interesting paradoxes. The first is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Soft to be strong, vulnerable be, to be powerful. Well, I was a warrior. I mean, th this did not connect with me. But I kept studying Tai Chi as a martial art, not as a contemplative practice. And one day, some years later, I was in a courtroom trying a case, and the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? And after that trial, I went on a whitewater trip with a bunch of friends, and I spent the week on the main salmon on my own raft, just contemplating how many people I served as a trial lawyer, and figured out that I'd only served five people out of 20, uh, in, in 22 years, five people came out of the legal system better than going in. Well, uh, that, that sucks. I don't want to go 30 years and only have served 15 people. Yeah. So I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew that I wasn't going to be a trial lawyer for a whole lot longer. Yeah. But when I got back to town, I, I live in the mountains in the central Sierra Nevada, south of uh, Yosemite National Park. Oh, nice. And yeah, it's beautiful. And I've got 10 acres here and, mm -hmm. and drove down to my office in town on I heard the one and only public service announcement that was ever broadcast for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies offered by Fresno Pacific University, which is the West Coast Mennonite School. And so I enrolled and they completely turned my head around. I mean, it was just an amazing experience with learning from the people who basically invented the concept of restorative justice, if you've ever heard that. And it was during those studies that I got interested in neuroscience because I, 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 I got the insight that we're 98% emotional and only 2% rational. And then I got the insight that everything starts in the brain. So I ought to at least have a layman's understanding of basic brain physiology and functioning. And, of course, in those days, that was in the 
late 1990s, nobody had ever heard of neuroscience. Functional magnetic resonance imaging had just come online. It was really easy to follow the studies because there weren't any out yeah. there, not like today. And I was lucky to be tutored by John Allman, who's a professor of neuroscience at Caltech in Pasadena, California. So, so I, I was able to start learning about human conflict through a neuroscience lens. And ultimately, my partners and I couldn't agree on what I was going to do. So I told them to go stop it. And I gave them one week's notice and walked out, leaving $10 million on the table. And started my own peacemaking and mediation practice in 2000. And it's the best decision I've ever made. Uh, I've helped more people in a week than I helped in 22 years as as a lawyer. And along the way, I developed some really powerful tools for calming people down because people were paying me a lot of money to walk into conflicts where emotions were extremely high. Things like family business conflicts and organizational disputes and community disputes and congregational disputes and faith communities. Those are the worst. Extremely high emotion. And the one thing that my master's studies did not give me were the tools to calm people down. So I had to develop them on my own. And I came up with this. I I ended up developing this skill that the technical name for it was called affect labeling, but I didn't know that at the time, uh, it, where you basically are reflecting somebody's emotions back to them with the use statement. And I, I, I discovered it in 2005 in this incredible mediation that I did as a mediator. And I was able to calm this couple down and have them, before the mediation started, they would have there would have been blood on the floor if there were knives on the table. <laughs> and three hours later, they walked out holding hands and had lunch with each other. They were a formerly divorced couple. I mean, it was amazing. And then in 2007, Matthew Lieberman, who's a neuroscientist at UCLA, came out with his first brain scanning study that showed why this particular idea or technique of ethic labeling works and how it actually works in the brain. And that that's what really got me going. Now I had some hard science to, to support what I was teaching and, you know, I could look at all the naysayers, the people who, who were proponents of Roger Gordon or uh, Thomas, Thomas Gordon's active listening and Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, none of, wh- none of which works, by the way, and, and say, where's your science? Here's my science. And that's how it all started. And then, then that led to the prison project in 2010 and my fourth book in Deescalate in 2017. And here I am at 71 years old, acting like a 30-year-old. Nice. All right. I like it. We got a lot to unpack, my friend. Let's. So that's my origin yeah, story. Yeah, I dig it. Okay. Can you can you run by us one more time all of the uh, the gifts or challenges that you were given at birth? Yes. I had two club feet. My right foot was na- sort of naturally straightened itself out. But my left foot had to be, they had to basically smash it apart and rebuild it. Okay. And even today, even to this day, I it, I have a limited mobility in my left ankle, okay. and my left leg is atrophied compared to my right leg. But that didn't stop me from becoming a level three certified ski instructor, or black belt. You know, I've done a lot, a lot of accomplishments, mostly because people said I couldn't do it, and that was like putting a red flag up. Um, I was also born near total, not total blindness, but my vision was twenty four hundred. So what what uh, most people could, uh, what you could see at 400 feet, I could see at 20 feet. Basically. 
uh, really Elephant bad. Out. And nearsighted and astigmatism. Bad, bad nearsightedness and astigmatism. That all got corrected later on with uh, RK surgery and then LASIK surgery. And uh, I mean, the miracles of modern ophthalmology got my vision back t- together. And then I have, I've got a partial hearing loss, high frequency, which is not enough to bother me. But if you do an, a, a test, a hearing test to the higher frequencies, I just can't detect. Um, bad teeth, m- missing a whole bunch of teeth. Had to have braces for years and years and years and years to get everything straightened out. I've got a mouth a mouthful of stuff, you know. So that was that was pretty much it. And I was born left-handed, which you you would think, well, that's not a big deal. But in the 1950s, I was born in 1950. That is a big deal because nobody knew how to deal with the left-hander. All the coaches were right-handed, and I had horrible coaches, horrible teachers. I mean, not horrible teachers, but I mean people who just did not know how to deal with a kid like me. Ill-equipped. Ill-equipped and very impatient. That left hand probably not fighting, though. Right-handed guy, yeah. you show up. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I, I swore to my, I learned at a very young age that I swore that if I ever taught anybody, I would never teach the way that people were trying to teach. Yeah, I was going to ask. I would always be able to break things down into very small, easy-to-digest steps and work with people until they actually mastered whatever it is I was teaching them, which made me a great ski instructor and a great martial arts teacher. And, and stuff like that. So, yeah, can we go a little bit deeper on that and then kind of dovetail into some of the other some of the other um, skills, gifts, compassions that resulted from <laughs> from how your life began? So, like you talked about how, yeah. how it changed you as a teacher and how you broke things down into smaller steps. Can you elaborate on on that? For because a lot of us are, are teachers, leaders, entrepreneurs that have people working on our team and. You know, teaching is just a part of life, I, I think. Right. Um, what, what does your process kind of look like? Well, whenever I learn something, I think about how would I teach this? And how would I teach somebody who has absolutely no skill in this to do it? So, for example, right, I've, I've been a student. I've, I'm a, I've been a fiddle player for over 40 years, but I took up jazz violin 12 years ago, which is very, very difficult. And every time I teach her, my teacher is, at times she's a great teacher. Most of the time, though, she's not so great. But she gives me, she tells me, this is what I want you to do. you got to go figure it out. And that's the way it's always been in my whole life. Nobody's ever, this is how you do it. Um, there are some things, technical things that she's been very good at. But but mostly, I've just got to figure it out on my own. And I have a, I've developed a system for doing that. And the system is this. Break it down, break down whatever the skill is or the idea is or whatever you're trying to teach. You break it down into the simplest most basic components you can you can you can, you can and then break that stuff down into even smaller pieces and then think about the way to describe it demonstrate it and do it. just that one piece so you've got to work with visual auditory and kinesthetic learners and then and then give it to your student have them describe it watch it and do it and when they get that skill down, then you're ready to move on to the next step. Okay. And and as you, it's building blocks. And and I found this to be an extremely effective way of teaching complex skills to adult learners. That makes sense. Um, and I, I I did this. I actually applied this this whole methodology when I was a trial lawyer in my law firm. I was I was a law professor too, teaching law, and I t- I would teach my young lawyers trial skills. 
And so the way we, the way I would teach them trial skills is by breaking these down into very small little pieces of things to do to learn how to do stuff like cross-examination or direct examination or an oral argument or a jury selection or whatever it might be. Break it down into really, really small pieces. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you right, you are learning it yourself and, and thinking about how would I teach this to someone right. else. So from the very beginning, right. you're already thinking about beginning. how would I teach this. And then, That's right. and then the first step, you describe it in, in the smallest possible increments, you know, as simple as you can. Then you do it. Essentially, you demonstrate it for them. They get to watch you. And then you ask them to do it and demonstrate it for you. Correct. And then make, make, make suggestions for improvement. That's the other part of my teaching that I've learned is, is that I, I coach for improvement. So what that means, for adult learners do not, do not do well with criticism right. or with judgment. So the, so the way that I've learned to coach people is to give them one thing they did really well, very specific, that I want them to improve upon, that I want them to do again. So, for example, if I'm teaching, working with a skier, an advanced skier, and I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, a medium radius dynamic turn, a dynamic parallel turn, for example, I might say, I might say, that those last set of turns, your the shape that you made with the turns was perfect. Keep doing that, because that we want to build on. And and then I'll say, now next in the next set of turns, you might want to consider getting on to an earlier edge by dropping your ankle. Your, your outside ankle into the turn just as you're beginning to extend into it. And then I will demonstrate that and show that this is what it looks like. It'll feel like you're collapsing your knee into your boot, and that will get you on that early edge, and you'll feel the ski whip around. So try that. So one thing they did really well, one suggestion for improvement. That's it. How did you phrase that again? Your suggestion for improvement. The language was good. Your coach. So, so you give. It's called coaching for improvement, and you give. You give one. You tell them one thing. They very specific thing they did very well that they can replicate, right. and then you give them one suggestion to 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 improve what they're doing. And how did you say that? You said you something like that they did anything wrong. Like next time you might want to or uh, yeah you next time you might want you might try this try try this or you know you, you might consider doing doing it this way i like that you might consider doing it this way all right that's and it's it's yeah because you're right a lot of people when with when faced with criticism it, it, it's almost like they it, it like triggers something from their childhood maybe a parent that's that was right. like too hard on them or overly critical and 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 you can that's tell right. they emotionally like close off and then they're no longer receptive that's to right. teaching okay cool exactly correct so describe it demonstrate it do it um giving suggestions for improvement you 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 provide for them one thing that they did very well that you want them to keep doing and build upon and then you give them uh, a suggestion for improvement and 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 kind of execute that into the, the protocol. I like that a lot. Over a period of time, people will dr- dramatically improve. Over if you take it in, again, small bite-sized pieces. Over a period of time, you see dramatic improvement. And you, as a leader or as a coach or as a teacher, you have to be patient and recognize the learning process is is time. There's a time on a time. It's a time continuum, and so it takes time. Mm-hmm. But if you're patient and you follow this process and you're very structured about how you teach your whatever you're teaching you can see dramatic improvements from just about anybody yeah that's awesome 
None of us are born with the warrior spirit. It is taught and trained. On the wrestling mats of Iowa, the mountains of Dagestan, and in homes across the world. Courage is learned from mentors and elders. Bravery is inoculated by a regimen of strategic training and discipline. This discipline culminates when the warrior has garnered the skill set to do what most men can't or won't. When he willingly runs into the fires of initiation because that is where his people need him. We feel disconnected when we chase the false idols of money, material possessions, and comfort. But true purpose and freedom are earned by training those parts of ourselves from which most men run. Some heavy shit is coming down, brothers. And those who rise to accept this call will go through it and win. The body, mind, and spirit are your instruments of victory. One cannot be properly trained while ignoring the other two. Our elite one-on-one coaching program is this training and your call to rise. Whether you're trying to build muscle, burn fat as fast as possible, upgrade your brain, reclaim your health, or unleash the warrior within, I will build you a personalized game plan to take your body, mind, and spirit to their true potential. At biohackercoaching.com, you will tap into the most cutting-edge health, anti-aging, and transformation protocols personalized exclusively for you to radically enhance your physical and mental performance. You'll have me in your corner as your coach and guide. With detailed instructions and advanced custom techniques to optimize your life, weaponize your body, and bulletproof your mind so that you achieve your goals as fast and safe as humanly possible. You'll discover science-derived lifestyle hacks I've only shared with our roster of Olympic gold medalists, world-class athletes, U.S. Special Forces, high-level businessmen, and super achievers from all walks of life, people ruthlessly committed to unlocking their ultimate capabilities. This program is for beginners, intermediate, and advanced fitness levels and provides everything you need to optimize your body, mind, and spirit's full capacity. We run labs and and blood work first because we believe in testing, not guessing. Then we use those data points to build you a unique, personalized program to correct underlying challenges and transform you into the man or woman you're here to become. Whether you're wanting to get shredded, add pounds of lean muscle, sharpen your mental focus and brain power, or heal, everything you need is included, and you'll have me in your corner holding you accountable, and guiding you through every step of the way. Because this isn't something I outsource to other coaches who may not have the skill set or experience you need, I can only work with five men each month. To grab a time for us to speak and determine if our Apex coaching program is a fit, go to biohackercoaching.com and book a time for you and I to discuss your goals. Because we receive 50 to 100 applications each month for these five spots, if you'd like to request your application gets moved to the top of the list, send me a text message to my personal phone at 847-989-3743 and let me know why you're ready to change your life. This is elite personalized training at the highest level with zero guesswork. Only a small handful of people get this level of access to me and these teachings. If you've resonated with this, 
Go to biohackercoaching.com now and fill out the short application form to grab a time for us to connect. Strength and honor. And that's cool that you you took on the jazz violin. I've I've my brother plays like ten instruments and I play none. You know, I've got like a, I've got like a harmonica that I screw around with when I'm camping in, in North Carolina, and I right, got, I got right. some drums drums that I bang on if I've had a glass or two of wine, but it's nothing that anyone wants to listen to. So jazz violin is is very very impressive and probably helps keep your mind young. I would I would I would imagine like learning these new things yourself and being engaged Absolutely. in this process. Absolutely. I'm always trying to be a beginner at something. I like that. And by, be, by being a beginner at something, it, it does a couple of things. Number one, it keeps me humble. It always reminds me where my students are at. And two, of course, to your point, it's engaging my mind at a different level than if I'm engaged at, in areas where I've developed expertise. 100%. You know, I saw this statistic the other day that um, most Asian children have a history of violins just huh. play on well, words i'm, screwing, I know I'm just screwing around history of violence history of violence you know because a lot of kids asian kids play violence I'm just... a lot of asian kids play violence. all right that's, there are a million that's other things like i'm i'm curious like you know a lot of times like our pain becomes our gift right necessity can be our greatest teacher and the things that that are the most challenging and hurtful or make us feel different and isolated like i'm not like other people you know they end up shaping us and and almost giving us our superpowers when, when transmuted properly. Right. But there's also a dark side. Yeah. And I, I had to suffer the dark side before I got to the light. And that is that all of these disabilities and coupled with a superior intellect made me very arrogant uh, and very aloof and with, and uh, difficult to connect with. And, you know, I mean, I was, I was hiding all the emotional hurt yeah. that I had suffered for so many years and it wasn't until I started learning how to listen to emotions that all that started to shift. Yeah. And that, and, and I've seen it in, I've seen the same shift that as I've taught people the skill of affect labeling. I've seen the same shifts in them from murderers and maximum security prisons who I trained to be peacemakers to senior analysts at the Congressional Budget Office who I've taught how to de-escalate members of Congress. And so that was the great, that was the great awakening. Do you, do you remember that and moment? You talked about like when you started learning Tai Chi and, and the lessons of like you have to be soft to be strong right. and, and you have to be vulnerable and be powerful. Right. Like, was there one moment where you, you felt your brain shift or was it just gradually diving <laughs> into Tai Chi? It was. I, I, that's a great question. I, I, I can't point to any one moment when. Well, actually, maybe there was a moment I I was in the middle of a, a, a divorce of my first wife, which was a very sad. In fact, I was grief-stricken over the whole thing. And uh, I remember driving past, coming up into the mountains, driving past the turnoff where my old house used to be, my old home on 20 acres, which I loved. I love that place. And lost it, of course. And one time I just became over, at that place, I, became, I was just overcome with grief. And this time I decided that instead of fighting it, I, I just pulled over, got off the road, and I just let myself go into the grief. And, I, and, and it felt like I was going to be annihilated. It was an annihilation experience. Like I would never come out. And I, but I just, I've been studying emotions a lot and really understood them well at an intellectual level. Right. And so this time I just said, I'm just going to experience this in its fullest. I'm going to explore every, every nook and cranny of this grief that I'm feeling. 
and see what happens. I'm not going to die. It's not going to be comfortable, but so what? My life has not been comfortable. And so I allowed myself to just go into it. And I sobbed and cried and just, just allowed my whole body to just drop into this deep grief over the loss of my marriage. And it cleared in about five minutes. And I came out completely different. So almost like a, a that was probably that was probably the moment because what happened was one, I no longer had a fear of emotion because I realized that I could I could take on that grief that deep grief, and two, I came out the other side with a lot more wisdom than I had going in in five minutes, and, and that was probably a turning point of, of my own softening as a human being from being really hard and disconnected and aloof and arrogant uh-huh. to starting to soften up. Now it's been a growth and evolutionary process, of course. You know, I think the other thing, the other, the other big experience in my life has probably been working the prison work that I've been doing for the last twelve years, working in maximum security prisons, training lifers and long termers how to be mediators and peacemakers. That's a humbling experience, and it's difficult work. What do you? But it worked. But it's satisfying. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that and specifically like the the prison of peace project from a neuroscience perspective. What do you think happened? that day in the car when, when you allowed yourself to have this, this uh, to, to, to fully drop into the grief and, and have what sort of sounds a bit like a cathartic emotional release. Right. So I, I think that what happened was that the emotional memories came up because we, we our, our, our affect and memories are all stimulated. It can be stimulated by, by external stimuli or by, or by memories. So memories came up, and I was on a hair trigger of experiencing this emotion we call grief, which is combined with a lot of different affective experience to create emotion. this emotion. And so, uh, you know, obviously the neural circuits around all of that really fired up, really got activated. So activated that I would, I you know, I couldn't think. So that my prefrontal cortex was completely shut down, and I really couldn't couldn't move. I was almost semi-paralyzed. And just in this state of overwhelm, I mean, that's what it was. It was a state of overwhelm where, and I think, and I think the, the nice thing about emotions is that they don't last very long. You know, the, the, uh, the longest emotion might be three or four or five minutes. Mm. And I knew that, which is why I knew I could survive this experience. And then what ha- what I've learned since is that grief and crying are the brain's way of resetting itself. Uh, both neurohormonally and also in terms of the neurosynaptic connections, it's a, it's a way, it's a reset. And so crying is the natural way of releasing stress and cleaning out old pathways that no, are no, no longer of service. And, and that's what it felt like. I mean, I, like I came out of it feeling terrific. I felt, I felt it wasn't an enlightenment experience, but it was a, liberating experience yeah and so what was and i think that you know you could just feel you know be i was aware enough to just feel what was going on inside me somatically and and in my brain and it was i mean it was really an interesting experience yeah i mean that's fascinating to me because i i remember when i was in my uh 20s saying to my mom and i was like have you ever seen dad cry and and my mom was like once when you were born and the only other time I even saw a tear leave his eye was when 
his dad died. My grandfather, we were at my grandfather's funeral and the, the, the that tear was actually, a, uh, I believe, a, a tear of uh, sadness from him recognizing the the reality that he would no longer, he would never have a relationship with his father because he never really did. And his father's passing was sort of a, a, a finality, you know, a period uh, at the end of that story where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm never really going to be able to connect with my own dad. Right. Regret. And, and, and I wonder how much that type of behavior, those patterns of never expressing emotion and allowing yourself to go into grief, like you said, and, and, and sadness and crying, how does that manifest in, in something like Parkinson's? That might yeah, well, you want me? You really want to get me started on it? I'm happy. Let's, let's do it. Why not? We can go everywhere. I think our culture. I think we've been lied to for for four thousand years by theologians and philosophers. We've been told that what separates human beings from other animals is our rationality. That is a, just a that's just a friggin' lie. What separate? What makes who? What we are are ninety eight percent emotional and only two percent rational. And what separates us from other human beings is our emotions. No other animal has emotions other than human homo sapien. And, and yet our culture says that emotions are bad, they're evil, they're weak, they're irrational. For men, you know, you're a sissy. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's emotions are our hidden genius. Emotions are what, where our creativity comes from. Emotions propel us through life. And we have this weird idea of the rugged individualist, which is total BS. And it's not only total BS, it's extremely destructive and abusive. I mean, have you heard of the ACEs study out of San Diego, mm -hmm. Adverse Childhood Experiences study? Mm -hmm. So Kaiser Permanente did a major study out of San Diego looking at the relationship between end-of-life comorbidity disease and early childhood experiences. And they found they were the researchers, Dr. Sperletti and his team were shocked at the direct and strong relationship between early childhood emotional abuse and end of life conditions like cancer, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, Parkinson's and all that stuff. Direct link, direct causation. And the emotional abuse isn't the kind of emotional abuse that you're thinking where, some, where somebody starts whacking a kid around. That's physical abuse, and that, was bad. that causes it too. It was it's something as simple as invalidating a child's emotions. And what I mean by that, if you remember when you were two years old, and you were out running around, you fell over, and you skinned your knee, and it started to bleed a little bit, and you started to cry. What were you told? Stop crying. That's right. Stop crying. Don't be a girly girl. Be a man. Big boys don't cry. Rub dirt in. It doesn't hurt. Girls are told the same thing, slightly different languaging, but the same thing. That's called emotional invalidation. And it is the most insidious and pervasive form of a, emotional abuse that exists. And all parents do it because they don't know any better, because it was done to them. And, they, and people do this emotional invalidation because they're soothing their own anxiety over the emotional state of the child. A child cries or gets upset. You tell the child not to cry, to not be emotional in order to soothe your own anxiety. Mm -hmm. So because if the child stops, stops crying, then you won't have the anxiety that's so uncomfortable. It's all unconscious. Wow. That makes sense. And that is, that is, to get, it's, this is a long winded answer to your question. What are the manifestations of all of this? 98% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional and unemotionally dysfunctional because of emotional invalidation. And, and 
they raise emotionally dysfunctional adults. And why do you think there's so much addiction, so much anger, so much, so many relationship problems, so much unhappiness, especially now? Mm-hmm. It's because of upbringing. And if you want to look at the worst examples, look at my students, my incarcerated students. They're the worst. Ex- I mean, they're, they come from the worst families. Murderers aren't born, they're bred. You know, you, you learn violence. You're not born violent. And it's all, it all comes down to emotions and what's going on in the brain. How do we break this pattern? We validate emotions instead of invalidate them. We engage in affect labeling, which is the secret to calming angry people down, too, as, as it turns out. And it's a really simple three-step process. Remember how I said I break things down? It's really simple. Step number one. Let's just say you're, you're confronted by an angry person. The first thing you're going to do is ignore the words. Ignore the words. It's white noise. Don't listen to it. Number one, it will prevent you from getting triggered yourself. And number two, it frees up bandwidth for you to do steps two and three. Step number two, you're going to read the emotional data fields of this angry, upset person, understanding that anger is the presenting emotion, but underneath it are going to be six or seven other emotions at least. And people will think, well, how do I read emotions? Well, emotions are data, just like numbers on a spreadsheet. And and the beauty of it all is, is our, our brains are hardwired to read emotions. Uh, let me explain this because I'm just so fascinated by this. We've only had the ability, as homo sapiens, we've only had the ability to for language for 230,000 years. And we gained that ability when we mastered fire because now we were able to render animal fat into soluble fats that we could actually digest. And that increased our calories, which allowed for a massive increase in our cranial capacity and a rapid expansion over about 10 or 15,000 years of our hypoglossal nerves and our pharyngeal nerves and muscles that control our vocal apparatus. And we went from grunts to language in about 12,000 years. And of course, with language came abstract thinking, and that built you know, the edifice of our modern culture. The Sistine Chapel. Before that time, yeah, <laughs> before that time, there was no language. But hominids have been on the planet for millions of years. How did they communicate? They communicated through emotions, facial expressions. And that is hardwired into us. We have the innate capacity to accurately and rapidly read another person's emotions if we simply pay attention. So the second step is read the emotion data field. And all you do is you, you just empty your mind, be in stillness for a couple of seconds, and almost instantaneously, emo- you'll, you'll start getting the emotions that this other person is experiencing. And then the third step, and this is the hard part for most people, is that you're going to reflect back the emotion with a simple use statement. So I could say, hey, Anthony, man, you are really pissed off. You're really angry. You're frustrated. You don't feel heard. You don't feel supported. You feel like you're being treated unfairly. And you're anxious and worried and sad. And you feel a little betrayed that nobody's sticking up for you. You don't feel loved. And the whole situation just really, really has you in a rage. I'm going to continue in that way until you do four things. One, you're going to nod your head yes. You're going to say yeah or exactly. Uh, Your shoulders are going to drop and you're going to sigh in relief. All involuntary relaxation responses. And what that shows me as the listener is that your, your ventral lateral prefrontal cortex has come back online and your amygdalae and the associated limbic system, parts of the brain that brought on that anger in the first place, have been inhibited, have diminished in their activity. And that's exactly what Lieberman's study showed happens in his 2007 study. The simple act of reflecting back 
what somebody is feeling using a you statement, not an I statement, has an amazing magical effect on our brains. I mean, you want to talk about the greatest biohack ever. This is it because this is the foundational skill of life. No more fights and arguments. Every single person I've taught these skills has never had a fight or argument again in their lives. It just goes away. And you can walk into any angry situation and know exactly what to say, how to say it, when to say it, but with perfect and utter confidence that you're going to know what's going on. And after you get skilled at it, you can look at any situation, immediately read the emotions and know exactly what's going on with people. That's how powerful this is. It's it's fascinating. So step one, you ignore the words because it's like white, white right. noise. And that yeah. allows you to do step two, which is to read the emotional data fields beneath the presenting emotion. So maybe the presenting emotion is right. like rage, like someone wants to right. rip your head off. Right. Right. And, and you're like, OK, what's what are, what are the emotions beneath this? You know, if you, if you imagine it like an right. iceberg, there's like the little tip of the iceberg. There you go. I call it layers. layers. Yeah. There are six layers. Yeah. And we can go into that if you want. Uh, we can go into those. I, I, I would like to. Yeah. What? Uh, yeah. Let's 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 do that. And then and then step three okay. is is you reflect back the emotion with a you statement until you see their brain and nervous system relax. Relax. Okay. okay. What are these these six layers? Let's go deeper. So we've got, so, so the, again, here this is going back to Doug Knowles' teaching style, mm-hmm. right? Breaking this down into very teachable, learnable, easily assimilated information. Mm-hmm. Think about. Emotions in six layers, like a layer cake. Top layer is going to be the anger emotions, which could be anywhere from hatred and rage all the way down to minor irritation or annoyance. Uh, Frustration would be in the anger category. And frustration is a big one. A lot of people feel frustrated. Then underneath, the the next layer down, layer number two, are what I call dignitary emotions. These would be emotions like being treated unfairly or unjustly, lack of respect, disrespect, lack of appreciation, lack of support, not being heard, things like that. Third layer, fear emotions. So that would be fear, being scared, anxious, frightened, worried. Fourth layer, shame, humiliation, guilt, and embarrassment. Fifth layer, sadness and grief. And the bottom layer, where it all starts, is the feeling of being abandoned and unloved. And the way that I train my students to listen is to start with the start with go start in any layer. Start with whatever is presenting. Start in that layer and work that layer, and then you can either go up or down depending upon what you're what you're picking up. And of course, you've got to be careful in discerning because if, in some contexts you don't want to go too deep because it might not be appropriate, but in other circumstances it 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 would be appropriate. And so, part of what I have to teach people is how to use discernment to know okay, when do I talk about being abandoned and feeling unloved and when do I not go that? And so, so there's some skill involved in that, but it's, it's basically common sense. And you just, like I said, you have to develop discernment. So you think when you think about emotions coming in these six layers, <clears throat> it becomes very easy to, to pull in the data that you're getting from the other person. And now you've got a, a, a structure in your yeah. brain. It's, it's called structured data. And you've got, you're not just at a loss. Gee, what, what do I do with this? You've got, a, you've, got a, you've got a framework that you can put the data into. That's our brain-slide structure. And you can almost immediately start structuring what, the data you're getting and then immediately start reflecting it back. So as you're reading those emotional data fields, 
you're almost taking inventory. Are, are we where are we at? Anger, right. rage, frustration? Is this more? Is this more being? They feel they were treated unfairly or unjustly, or they're not being heard. Right. Is this fear, anxiousness, or worries? Is shame? You know, so your brain is kind of applying the framework and just taking it all in, so that you can accurately reflect back to them what's going on internally. Right. And here, and here's the. The really cool thing that happens to you when you do this, you become egoless. Yeah, it's an empathy practice. You, 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 there's no room for your ego. So that means once you become egoless, you feel like you're one. One of the way Eckhart Tolle calls it the power of now. And that's what this experience is. That's why I don't like Eckhart Tolle. He never t- tells us how he does it. Yeah, right? hey, I, some people love his stuff. I'm like, there's not a lot. There's not a lot I don't, here. I don't. He's, he's, a, he's a loud. That's yeah, fluffy. But but in any event, this is how you experience it. For about twenty or thirty seconds, you become completely egoless, and you you just feel this oneness. Mm-hmm. And from there comes compassion. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you have compassion for this angry person. You're not mad. You're not upset. You're not. You're totally neutral inside yourself. You're, you're totally calm, and you just have compassion. It's like holding a little baby that just pooped. You know, we're not going to beat the baby up because the baby pooped. And have compassion. Oh, baby, you just pooped. Let me change your diapers. Mm-hmm. That's the feeling you have. And so let's say there is a situation where someone wants to rip your head off. I'm sure you've been in that at some point in time. And there's there's the part of you that is also probably a little bit concerned for your physical well-being. Like, am I going to sit here reading this person's data field while they punch me in the face? Well, (laughs) for me, for me, it's a little different, of course, because I've got a a lot of many, many years of martial arts training. So taking me on would be a big mistake. And I've never had anybody do it. So, but for people who are not trained in martial arts, obviously, if there is an imminent threat of physical danger, you've got to back up and get out. You would not walk, you would not walk into a situation trying to calm an incipient violence. Mm -hmm. And this is true both for all of us as well. And this is exactly what we teach our incarcerated students as peacemakers. Do not get involved if there's incipient violence. It's just not worth it. Okay. Makes sense. So... How does this tie into listening, listening others into existence? I came up with that phrase because I was teaching a, a, some middle school teachers these techniques for classroom control, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And we were doing a, a peace circle. And I teach peace circles as a way of practicing these skills. And we finished the circle and in, in the circle was an administrator. And I was just asking for feedback. Well, what was that experience like for you? And and when it came to her turn, she said, that's the first time I've ever felt like I've been listened into existence my whole life. Even my professional life, I felt ignored and completely invisible and nobody pays attention to me. And even when I talk, nobody's listening to me. This is the first time I felt listened to. I felt like I was just listened into existence and the light bulb went on. And I thought, wow, how cool is that? And then after having done this tens of thousands of times, if not millions of times, it, there's a deep validation that occurs when you affect label somebody, when you reflect back their emotions. And for most people who have never, most people have never experienced emotional safety and most people have never experienced being heard at this level. And it literally, they literally feel like they're being listened into existence. Like for the first time, somebody is seeing them for who they really are. And when you're, oh, sorry. And, and I was going to say, when you start doing this, you'll, you'll, everybody has the same experience. They get that same gratitude every time they listen to somebody in this way. Compassion is something I've been praying for more recently. And and 
you know, I focused a lot on love and gratitude and peace and joy, but it wasn't until recently that I, I started praying more for compassion because there were times, especially post 2020, where I would find myself frustrated or angry or, you know, even, even experiencing some of those emotions that you described where maybe I'm putting people down in, in, in my mind for not seeing things that I see or, or, or having the same point of view that I see. And, and, and compassion has been an important part of better managing my own internal peace and, and not expressing that, that frustration. Where I'm going with this is what are you feeling or what is it your intention to communicate non-verbally to the individual as you de-escalate them? right? You're, you're reading their emotional data field, but you are also a transmitter yourself. And even though you're not talking, you know, you mentioned the word emotional safety. What are some of the predominant things that you want them to feel in your presence? You know, do you want them to feel like, like there's emotional safety in your presence that they're fully heard? Like what's kind of going on, maybe even subconsciously or non-verbally in the background? Well, the more advanced in the more advanced levels of this, we teach uh, we teach people how to match so that if if you've, I've got somebody at this level of anger, mm -hmm. I'm going to come in with my intensity and be right underneath it. OK, and then they're going to go up. I'm going to follow them. They're going to go up. I'm going to follow them. And usually by the third time or third utterance, they drop way down and I come down and then I calm. I, I'm very calm with them. Interesting. So. So you want to match intensity until they drop and then you get underneath that and then you're very, very calm and, that, and they pick up on it. So that. it's almost like a form of entrainment. Like they're, they're de yes. there, there's devices in the biohacking yeah, exactly. community that will like use lights exactly. and mm -hmm. sounds and, and even electrical right. currents to entrain your nervous system and synchronize. The, the, the entrainment is essentially like, That's you right. know, it's, it's synchronizing your nervous system with the dominant external stimulus. So you're saying, where's That's the right. person at? I'm going to go right below them and I'm going to match them and I'm going to come to their energy, but stay a little bit beneath it because as I do that, then I have the capacity to entrain them down into a more peaceful and, and calm state. state. Correct. Yeah. Exactly correct. Interesting. Interesting. I'm curious. So knowing what we know about the emotional nature of, of human beings and how that really is like one of our greatest gifts and our ability to like, like that we're constantly reading the emotions of others. Right. And, and what we now know through the study of neuroscience, the impact that that has on our brain and our emotional development. What are your thoughts on what's going on with children and masks, children and masks? Oh, 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 oh. yeah. So that's, a, I, you know, I, no one's ever asked me that question before and I hadn't really thought about it. Actually, it's not too bad because most of the emotional expression is in the eyes. Uh, not all of it. But a vast majority. So we can read emotions even from with masked people. There's a neuroscientist in London, Simon Baron Cohen. He's the cousin of Sasha Baron. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Turns out he, stu he studied autism in children, the neuroscience of autism. And he developed sort of the, the gold standard study for placing children on an autistic autism continuum based on their ability to read emotions. And all he does is show them pictures of eyes. Mm faces and it's mostly all eyes and the children are asked to describe the emotions that they see and based on how accurate they are he determines where they fall on the spectrum so we know there's pretty hard science that knows that the most emotional expression is going to come from the eyes and then the rest from body language the tone of voice volume of voice 
be the voice. And of course, the words don't mean anything. So masking probably has hindered some emotional development, but not completely. Right. It's not, it's, it's not a done deal. Um, we're going to get in just a second. I'm going to ask you about emotional intelligence versus emotional competence. But before we do, I mean, do you believe that human beings possess the capacity to communicate telepathically on some level? Well, there's no science to support that, or there's very little science if there's any at all. I, I, I have seen things that science cannot explain. I've done things that science cannot explain. So I am, although I'm a lawyer and inherently skeptical, I'm also wise enough to recognize that that our science has its limitations and there are phenomena that exist that science simply can't explain because perhaps the instrumentation is not refined enough to, or we don't have a theoretical basis to explain stuff. I am not one of those people like skeptic magazine that says that if you can't explain it and you can't test it, then it doesn't exist. Mm. I've had plenty of experiences in my own life of things that science could never explain. Which one comes to mind? And yet here it is before my own eyes doing stuff, you know? And, and so to say that telepathy exists or doesn't exist, obviously, you know, we don't have any science that says that it does in there. And I haven't seen any demonstrations, legitimate demonstrations that establish that there might be a phenomena of some mind to mind communication. But I'm not going to say it can't happen. Right, right. I know better. I know better. And, and when you think about the phenomena that like of all the phenomena you've experienced that maybe current scientific uh, research does not have an answer for, which one comes to mind? Or which one's like a story that you've told more than others? I'll never forget the time I was teaching a workshop in Santa Barbara, actually outside of Santa Barbara in Ohio, and uh, with a colleague of mine. And we were, this was an advanced class for mediators, people like me who resolve conflicts. And we were trying to teach, we were trying to teach them how to, that, that, to get out of their heads. Because most, they were all lawyers, mostly. Get out of your heads, get out of your lawyer mind, be in your whole body mind. And I have developed a skill through my Tai Chi training of ma- manipulating Chi, which is energy. And I can take a, and so what I did was I took a business card and I fold it and I put it on a table and the business card moves 15 feet. And then we took candles and we blow the candles out with our energy. And I had them all doing it. And three people walked out. They just left. They, they couldn't handle it because it was so mind-bending for them. So that's the kind of stuff. I kind of want to see about. that. All right. We'll do a part two with some it's, candles. It's, anybody can do it. It's not, it, it's not like it's magic. Anybody can do it. You just have to have, you know, again, the training and under, and just and trust and trust in it. And it, it happens. And it's replicable. It's replicable and duplicable. When you were describing that, you touched both sides of your face. What was going on there? Yeah, I go left, right. Boom. I'm not exactly sure. When I learned the technique from a Korean master, I'm not sure. I didn't get a good explanation why you do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) There was a language barrier there. And so I didn't get a good explanation. I just know that doing this is like it energizes the field, the the chi field in the body and and allows the energy to flow. And then then what's going on when, when, your intent is to move that card. Are you are you sending energy out of your hand? Are you sending it out of your heart, your mind? What's no? Well, no, it's no totally non intentional. What you're doing is letting the energy flow through you. 
So I just so the, you can't be rigid. It's the difference between a garden hose that's frozen and has ice in it, and a garden hose that has sat been in the sun and has gotten very soft and pliable. That garden hose will allow a lot of water to flow through. The frozen garden hose will not. So you have to be very relaxed, and you just have to just you don't will anything. You just let the energy flow. If you have any intention at all, it's just energy is flowing through you and out your out your arm. But you don't have to. There's no mental effort involved in this at all. So question mark around uh, telepathy, but uh, check mark on telekinesis. Yes. (laughs) Awesome. That would be true. I mean, at least from my own, my personal experience is that I've done it and I've taught other people how to do it. That's pretty gnarly. All right. You're going to have me practicing some stuff later. When, When you're dealing with, especially people in the prison system who have maybe learned to hide their emotions or they've, or they've become calloused for any variety of reasons. Is, is there a, okay. So like for someone who's a heavy drinker for them to even go into the AA program and, and stop drinking, there has to be like that intention and that awareness that they have a problem and a willingness to change. Is there a prerequisite for you to be able to sit down with people? Do they have to want to, uh, become more emotionally competent or like, how do you even let someone know that it's safe? Cause I've talked to some guys who will like, <laughs> they go their whole life, never expressing emotion. You know, it's just, they don't do it. Yeah. Right. So how right. do you go in and even where's the, how do you even get them started? So when we go into a prison for the first time, I mean, we've all obviously worked with the administration and we have it, we put up big posters in all the housing units that there's going to be an orientation meeting for prison of peace. And we go in and typically we'll be in a gym and there'll be 100, maybe 150 people in the gym, depending on whether we're in a women's prison or men's prison, men or women, obviously. And we spend we spend an hour, we introduce ourselves, and we spend an hour talking about the program, what it is that we're here to do. And, we, and what we tell them is the Prison of Peace is, is, is a program of service where you're going to learn how to become a mediator and a peacemaker to stop violence and fights and arguments in the prison. And we say it's not for everybody. In fact, we spend 45 minutes trying to dissuade people from coming to class. But we give them a very clear description of how much work it is. And it's a lot of work, how rigorous it is. It's very rigorous academically and practically. We tell them what our expectations are. And then we say, if you want to, if you want to enroll in the program, there'll be sign-up sheets. And so people will sign up. And then we collect the sign-up sheets, and then on the first day of class, they get their ducats, their passes, to come to whatever our teaching area is, and we just see who shows that up. That makes a lot more sense. They have no idea what they're getting yeah, into. Yeah, but there's some sort of buy-in and, and willingness. There's something, there. what I've experienced is that they, they are attracted to the idea of becoming a peacemaker. Something about what we say or how we present ourselves attracts a certain portion of the population of a given yard. Or given prison. Have you seen the movie Tombstone? Have you seen the Are movie me? Tombstone? No? no. Oh man, you gotta see no. it. Right, Wyatt well, Earp it and out. Wyatt Earp and his brothers were they consider themselves peacemakers. Oh and, yeah, yeah. That's it's different. It's different stuff, but uh, yeah, okay. I see uh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. So so now they come in and they don't know anything. They don't even know what prison peace is all about. Mm-hmm. And we start teaching them again, the way I described earlier. Small piece by small piece. Mm-hmm. In the very first class, they're going to learn how to listen to emotions. 
we can start learning how to do that. That's the foundation of everything. So that skill is a skill we want to teach at the beginning. And that's what we start working with. And here's what we see. After six weeks of practice, you got all these hardened, cold, shut down, violent people. In six weeks, they're completely changed if they've done the work. They are human, normal, in touch with their emotions, smiling, happy, normal people. Fascinating. Takes about six weeks. It seems happens every single the first time we saw it, we couldn't believe it. And then we started seeing it in every single group, every single class at six weeks. That's when the shift occurs, if they've been doing the work. It sounds a lot more effective than like I've heard that story of Ho'oponopono. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, Hawaiian is Hawaiian peace Right. right? And, you know, where there was there was a, a medical doctor and he would he would think of people in the prison and then repeat, I, I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. It was like a mantra, an energetic mantra. And and, and supposedly he was getting insane amounts of, of people that were um, reforming and, and being released compared to other institutions. But this this sounds a lot more effective and a lot more active. Right. Because you. Yeah. Yes. And. and- well, and the thing that we emphasize is that this is not a self-help program. We're not here for you. We're here to teach you how to serve. You're, you're, you're going to move from serving a, a, a life sentence to living a life of service. Now, there are a lot of side benefits that you're going to get from this. But this is not a self-help program. Only be here if you want to learn how to serve others in a deep and profound way. And guys, if, if that mission resonates with you share this episode to let doug know that you appreciate him spending his time energy and wisdom with us and go to doug forward slash biohacks um, and you can access all of his courses and we've got discounts up to eight hundred dollars set up for you guys where you can go through these types of high level trainings that's d-o-u-g-n-o-l-l.co forward slash biohacks and uh to check those out and um yeah. So, so what would you say is the difference between emotional intelligence, which gets thrown around a lot, and emotional competence? And, and, and why is the difference crucial? Emotional intelligence is a test. The guys that developed it, John Mayer and, and Jack uh, Salovey, Jack Mayer and John Salovey. I was um, say your body is a wonderland. Uh, New Hampshire and Yale <laughs> University. Yeah, in the 1990s, they were studying social intelligences, and they coined the term emotional intelligence to describe a test of a type of social intelligence that they call emotional intelligence. And then Daniel Goleman came out in 1995 with his book and completely perverted the whole thing. And there's this huge schism between the academic study of emotions and emotional intelligence and the commercialization of the concept. You can't learn emotional intelligence, just like you can't learn an IQ test. Mm. And anybody that says they can teach you or coach you in emotional intelligence doesn't know what they're talking about. They obviously have not read the literature, the academic literature. What you can learn are skills that we call to develop emotional competencies. And the three basic emotional competencies are emotional self-awareness, emotional self-regulation, and cognitive empathy. And the way you develop those three basic emotional competencies is by ethic labeling. Or in other words, developing, it's, that would, it's called cognitive empathy. And it's amazing. I didn't know this until I started teaching it. But all of my students gain an enormous amount of emotional intelligence. In other words, they're able to score well on emotional intelligence assessments after they practiced ethic labeling. 
because ethic labeling pulls it all together. You can't, as you ethic label somebody, as you're listening to and reflecting back another person's emotions, you're building your own Mm. emotional Mm self-awareness. And from emotional self-awareness comes emotional self-regulation. Everybody else teaches it backwards. I mean, they teach you got to emotionally be self-aware and then you got to self-regulate and then maybe we'll get to empathy. But I found that the fastest way to develop your emotional competency is to learn cognitive empathy by the process of affect labeling. And like I said, four to six weeks and you're good to go. Completely changes your brain. And, and that process of affect labeling is what we described earlier, where you ignore the right. words, read, ignore the, the words, that's right. and then reflect. Excellent. That's exactly okay. right. Awesome. And, and so it, it, are those... It, is, are those the attributes of an emotionally competent person? Is it is it the emotional self-awareness, the emotional self-regulation, and the cognitive empathy? Yes, you have high levels of emotional self-awareness. You are able to self-regulate yourself, which means that you can make decisions about your, your behavioral choices against your emotional state. Mm-hmm. Your emotions that tell you are driving you to do one thing. You can self-regulate those emotions, calm yourself down, and make decisions that against what the emotions are telling you to mm. do. And you do that and you learn those two skills through the practice of cognitive empathy, which is which is basically ethic labeling or reflecting emotions. That makes sense. So, I mean, why isn't emotional competency taught to us? Number one, we have a cultural myth that says that emotions are bad. We've been lied to, as I said before, for 4,000 years. So we have, first of all, we have this huge structural barrier that emotions are bad. So nobody wants to nobody wants to talk about emotions. And that means that we come from families that taught us that emotions are bad. So we learn exactly the opposite. And why aren't we taught that? Because these ideas are new. Lieberman's study only came out in 2007. So what was what's that 14 years ago? Less than that. And and it's brand new information. It's transformative and it's earth-shaking. And it's culture changing. So it's going to take a while to get out there. And the reason that I have conversations with people like you is to make as many people aware as possible about this new knowledge and how transformative it is. So that I don't get asked the question, how come we're not taught this? I'm hoping in two generations, this will be, this will be normal, but it just takes a long time to get through the noise and to get new ideas out into the world. It would be brilliant if this was plugged into homeschooling programs. Yes, but I, but I, I, parents are not interested in this stuff. You'd be, you'd be, I mean, some are. I can't make that blanket statement. Some parents are very interested in this stuff, but most parents. Once the lot healthy, well adjusted kids are. Well, there are a lot, you would think. I mean, the studies show that if you start affect labeling on a child at four years old, by the time that child is nine, he's two grade levels ahead of all of his peers academically and is socially mature, has the social maturity of the average 16 year old. I mean, this stuff, because it, it, it helps the brain form properly. Mm-hmm. But p- most parents are not interested in that. What do you... It's amazing to me, but, but they don't have... I, I don't know what it is, but uh, there is not a whole lot of motivation. Right. It, it just depends on reaching the right people. But, you know, gosh, it would be, right. be a phenomenal part of, of homeschooling curriculum. And, like, just... We're, we're, we're in a regular education yeah. system. I got phenomenal results yeah. when I did a pilot program in a school district and we got amazing results. So you're right. This is foundation. Yeah. Uh, it's new. It's based on neuroscience. It's new, but it's a proven technology that works every time without fail. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the, the 
courses that you've put together that are at dougnoll.co forward slash biohacks? Yeah, there, I've, I've got two, four, four, thing, four offerings for, for everybody who's listening. Number one, you can get get an ebook that describes a lot of what I've been talking about. Give me your email address, you get my ebook. And I don't send out a lot of emails, so you're not getting spammed by me. Number two, you can buy my fourth book, Deescalate, which is the formulation of all of this stuff that I've put into my this fourth book. Then you can buy the Deescalate video course, which will teach you the specific skills that you need to calm an angry person. I suggest that you do that with a trusted partner so you can split the cost of the course. And uh, because it, you really need to practice the role plays that I have in there to, to, to build a practice. And then, and then what I learned over the years is that this teaching this built emotional competency. So I created the basic and advanced emotional competency courses. And when you, you're done with those courses, emotion, you'll be an emotional master, a ninja. And those, again, are courses that are useful to practice with a partner. If, you, if you're interested in taking the emotional competency courses, don't bother with the video course, the de-escalate video course, because that'll all get covered in the basic and advanced courses, and you'll just be duplicating some duplication. Gotcha. So, so the, the emotional so, competency courses, the basic and advanced version, those are kind of like your flagship product, if you, if you want to. Yeah, those are the high-end yeah. course. That high-end course is $1,500, $1,499. Audience gets the $800 discount off it. For $699, you get both courses. And it's about 30 lessons. And you get you know access if you have questions or you need help. I'm right there to Help you help you through the learning awesome. process. Guys, if, if you found this fast as fascinating as I have, go to dougnoll.co forward slash biohacks and uh, pick up the emotional competency course, either the basic advanced or, or the uh, the de-escalate video course or um, Doug's fourth book, de-escalate. Doug, what what if anything would you like to leave our audience with, or what do you feel compelled to share? at this point in our conversation, at this point in the evolution of humanity? Well, we, we all know that we live in a difficult time. We, we live here in North America. We live in a highly politically polarized environment. Violence is on the uprise. Uh, we have a war going on in Europe. There is a lot of anger, a lot of frustration in everyday life just from the stress of all the externalities. There is an antidote for that. That's out there. And that antidote is learning these skills. And what I would challenge everyone to do is become a ripple of peace. And the way you do that is you learn how to ethic label. And then when you're out walking around your neighborhood and you see a neighbor that maybe you know this person, maybe you don't. And you say, hi, what's going How are you doing? And as they start to talk, you simply reflect back their emotional experience and validate them. You're putting a little pebble of peace in the pond and sending ripples out. And you do that every single day. And if we had 10% of the people in our country doing that every single day, we would not be having the problems that we have today. Be a much calmer, safer, more joyous place to live without the violence. That's how each of us can can embody the our, our responsibility as, as, a, as a peacemaker. And, and become that, exactly. that ripple of peace. Exactly. Guys, if, if that resonates, go to dougnoll.co, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.co forward slash biohacks. And uh, we've got that, that discount set up for you guys. Doug, thank you so much for sharing your time, energy, and wisdom today. It's been a 
very fun and enlightening conversation. I appreciate you. Oh, you're welcome, Anthony. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. What's up, guys? It's Anthony here, and I interrupt this broadcast because I just opened up the coolest package. It was uh, it was one of the first packages that arrived at our PO box, and it included a bottle of uh, CBD infused hydrating body lotion from it looks like American Shaman is the company and I haven't tried it yet so I can't necessarily vouch for it but it looks pretty dope yeah a Liberty lives sticker a whole bunch of USA stickers and uh red white and blue and home of the brave and that sort of thing a $75 gift card to Lowe's which is pretty awesome and a little note cheers to making your own furniture and then I've got a cool uh, envelope with a letter here that I haven't opened, but I will open on the air. And uh, if if it's cool with the author, um, share it with you guys. And you know, if, it, if there's a question or two on there that I could help with, be happy to do that. So um, I love this. I absolutely love getting stuff in the mail, and uh, with all the digital censorship and everything that's been going on. It's it's a great way for us to be able to stay in touch and open those lines of communication. And just being real with you guys, I've been putting a ton of my resources into our North Carolina property. We had to buy an excavator. We have put in over a mile of roads into mountains at 3,500 feet that are filled with like thick, almost rainforest uh, topography. And now we're kind of getting to the point where I could build a home and I don't, I don't have a, you know, a couple million dollars in the bank, but I'm, you know, I'm comfortable. I live good. I have everything I need and I'm super, super blessed. Um, but if you guys feel compelled to contribute, if you feel that there has been a contribution to the value that you have received from the Biohacking Secrets Show, the Biohacker's Guide to Upgraded Energy and Focus, our coaching program, anything that we've put out there, some of our videos, whatever it is, if it's uplifted your life physically, mentally, spiritually, and you feel that the value that you have received exceeds the value that you've given um, and you have the means to do so, I'd love to open up uh, an opportunity for you to send in a donation that will go towards me building my house in North Carolina. And cash is amazing. Silver from Gainesville Coins is amazing. And really anything that you feel called to share. And if you're not in a position to share, obviously, like I'm not... I'm not trying to put you in a situation at all. That's not the purpose here. It's only if if there's abundance in your life, if you feel that the value that you've received from the things that we've put out exceeds the value that you've given, then uh, you can send in some something cool along with a handwritten letter to P.O. Box 7151, Deerfield, Illinois, 60015. That's P.O. Box 7151, Deerfield, one word, Illinois, 60015. And uh, 
if you do do so, like, yes, silver from Gainesville coins is amazing. Yes, cash is amazing. And I can use those things to help build a house in North Carolina. Oh, and a super dope biohacking gym that, uh, you know, yeah, there's a lot that we're going to do with that, with our events and with our coaching program and everything that you guys will see. But I got to build a biohacking gym and a home. And that's what your donations would be going towards. Um, but if you do do that, please include a handwritten letter. Share a little bit of your story, some of the ways that your life has changed or improved. If you have any questions, you can include one or two of those in the letter and I will answer them on the air. And I think it's an awesome way for us to stay connected, stay in touch, avoid some of the online censorship. And uh, and you guys could help me build my house and biohacking, biohacker gym. It'd be amazing. It's a win-win for everybody. So yes, appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for listening and being part of this journey. Much love to you. And now, without further ado, let's get back to the episode. 